Welcome to another episode of the Trusted Advisor podcast and video series powered by the Retail Solutions Providers Association. Our goal on the pod is to accelerate the success of today's and tomorrow's leaders in the retail IT industry. I'm Jim Roddy back with you again. Thank you so much for joining us. This is our second episode of 2024, and our plan is throughout the year to talk with leaders from both within and outside the RSP member community about their leadership journeys and what they've learned along the way. Our guest today is Savneet Singh, the CEO of Par Technology. Par serves more than 70,000 restaurants in 110 countries, and Par has been an RSP member for 24 years. Savneet, welcome to the Trusted Advisor. Thanks for having me. Yeah, wonderful. So I, I have several broad leadership questions to ask you, but I want to first focus on your message that you sent to PARS employees and then was posted online to start 2024. And just so everybody knows, you have about 1,500 employees. Is that right? Yep. Got it. And so you shared this message with them directly and again with the general public. And you talked about, you said, and I have it right here, it says the day one mentality. You said focus on being nimble, making decisions quickly, and essentially never being scared to question the status quo. And then near the end of the message, you say, and you put it in bold, our excellence today and tomorrow will be our capacity to take pain. So I guess, can you talk about that message and talk about the level of candor that you had with your employees to start the year? Um, sure. You know, so I think um, any company that grows a lot has some degree of success. A bit of stagnancy comes in. Uh, you start putting in lots of processes because you're growing so fast. You start put adding layers of, of middle management. You move, move the people that are close to the customers farther from the customers. Um, and, you know, I think you lose your edge. And, you know, when I think about PAR, um, you know, today we're this you know, relatively fast growing, larger business in our category, but, you know, five and a half years ago, we were almost bankrupt. And so, you know, there's a little bit, I, I wanted to set a remind everybody that we shouldn't be patting ourselves on the back, but assuming that what we accomplished in the last five years, we got to do it all over again. And the clock's back to zero and uh, the scorecard's back to zero. And so, you know, I think the holidays are a good time to rest and recuperate, but also a time to set our framework going into the year that we're going to have to really, really work hard and we shouldn't be standing on our laurels. So, you know, I, I like to kind of, Every holiday, think a little bit about what's going to matter. Um, and you know, for me, uh, I was feeling it myself. You know, am I getting lazier because now we have more people and this and that? And a lot of the stuff that got us here, I, I don't want us to forget and and stay tight to that. Um, you know, as it relates to candor, um, I think that's just the. Uh, I think people probably tell you it's pretty normal. Like the way I wrote this email was the same way that I write everything. I I write all my speeches. I write all my own slacks. I don't proofread. Um, and um, and so you know, I think that's just a. Uh, you know, it was something that that I, I never did purposely, but in effect, I think ostensibly I did. Um, and that when I got to PAR, we were a relatively formal company. Um, you know, I, I could tell when people would send me an email, it, they had taken a long time to proofread it and put the perfect punctuation. It probably spent more time proofreading the email than actually sending the darn email and creating the iterative process to get stuff forward. And so, um, you know, I, I, I myself would not act that way in order to encourage that behavior. And so I'm saying, hey, I care a lot more about the substance than the the, the packaging of the email or the um, presentation often because uh, my goal is to get to the right answer, not to have the best, you know, beautifully packaged or written email. So um, I think that's just sort of been a homework of par since we started. Got it. And so can you, that's interesting that you say all that and like, you it sounds like you put a lot of thought into saying, you know, our capacity to take pain, but you didn't feel like you were taking a risk with your audience because folks are used to the level of candor. I'm curious, can you talk about the path to get to from when you first started, right, where it was maybe a less candid organization to get to that point? Is that something that was a journey of weeks, months, quarters, 
years. Um, I guess, can you talk about how do you get an organization to, to get to that level of candor? Can you talk about your journey with that? Well, I think it starts with sort of leadership and, and all of leadership, not, not just myself. But um, I think, you know, the way we act as a leadership team is the best way to impact that change. And so a huge part of it is is not only, you know, maybe myself acting in a certain way, but also recruiting people to the table who act that way, too. Um, I take a lot of pride in that the the people that work with me on the executive leadership team, um, they have no problem cursing me out, questioning me, making me feel like an idiot. Um, you know, I take a lot of pride in that. And and I will never let them, you know, use the CEO card on them um, uh, because I think that's made us a lot better. It's made me question myself. It's clearly a fire under me, which is like, I got to make sure I'm good because these, these this team is really good and, and they're going to make me question myself. And so I think um, uh, it's it's acting that way as a leadership team that pushes it down. Um, but the other part is I think you have to reward that behavior. And so I think a lot of companies say, hey, we want to, this is important to us, but they don't reward it. And so, you know, a lot of stuff I, I think about at PAR um, that we've done, uh, and again, it wasn't purposeful, but I mean, essentially it was, you know, um, and I'll give you a couple examples. You know, we've had people at PAR step into leadership roles in their mid to late 20s um, when their predecessor was twice their age. Um, we've taken people with no background in a field and said, hey, now you run XYZ department to, to sort of see test them. And I think what that shows is, hey, we're willing to commit to the talent um, in your aptitude, maybe not your specificity of experience. Uh, and again, create a culture of like a little more dynamism, a little more risk taking, to be honest, which is, hey, that's a huge risk when you put somebody that might be too early. Or candidly, we've taken somebody that's in their late 50s who's never had a manager job and said, great news, you're now the head of sales um, at, at, you know, we've done all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but I think it's also then, you know, the cadences of your company. Um, you know, most larger companies have very formal cadences, you know, corporate sounding emails that come out uh, on the internet, you know, recorded videos. At par, you know, we don't, we just don't have that. You know, you see, you have me on Slack writing messages to the whole company, writing individuals, checking in with people I've never met. Um, when I started as a funny story, I think you know, kind of touching on your your question, I started noticing again how formal everybody was when and talking to me. We were a 50 year old company, um, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, I think tied to the past. Uh, and so I remember I started writing emails completely in the subject line and saying, T you know, thanks, and you, you know, uh, just to express how little I cared about. Um, you know, formality and how much more I cared about the answers. Uh, so, you know, I would do stuff like that. Or if there was a great example of somebody thinking like our, an owner, one of our, our values, uh, you know, we would show it in a town hall and and do it. And and then, you know, you would see these town halls were turned into, you know, large Q&A sessions about, well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about uh, this? And so we, I think we created a culture, but again, we've, we've stagnated too. I think, you know, are we more transparent than probably any other company our size? Yes. Anyone that comes to PAR or leaves PAR always comments on that was the most transparent company I've, I've worked at um, and most satisfied to leadership. But are we as good as we were probably four, four or five years ago when we started? Probably not. And so, again, I wrote that to kind of remind myself and the leaders that we got to keep innovating on top of that. Great. And can you share with us how long did it take to go from formal and not candid enough to where you wanted it? To be how long was that was that journey how long did it take well, i don't know if uh, i ever measured it but it takes I, I, you know i suspect there was a lot of change in the first three months and then i'd say uh probably it took us a year or so but you know okay. it happened quickly again you know I'll, i also think there's a lot of like naivete on my side i was i think 34 years old when i became the ceo of par you know uh my predecessor was 72. um you know it was a really you know i came in completely uh, you know, as a tornado because, uh, you know, I was 
commuting to par. Uh, and so I, what my wife and wasn't here. And so I, all I had to do was work. And so I think I, the tone got created really quickly, which is like, oh, this is different. Um, I looked different, I had a different background. And so I think the first three months we had a lot of change, but then I think it took another year or so before I felt like, okay, we've got, it's not the candor that matters. It's mm-hmm. the, the obsession of productivity that matters. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, serving the customers, getting the right thing done and not putting on airs like, uh, and, and making things look good. It's doing the right thing as opposed to doing what looks good. Yeah. Yeah. I worked for a company, uh, for, you know, really my first, uh, formative 17 years, very candid organization to the point of the operations manager who reported to me, she would go and tell her girlfriends on the weekend, they talk about work and she'd say, I had this conversation with my boss and they'd say, you're going to get fired. You can't say that to your boss. And she's like, no, I'm actually getting promoted, uh, in order to do that. So to your point of, you can't just have lip service. You actually have to, to follow through. One other thing you said in that message, you said, and so this is kind of taking that message and expanding a little bit more. You said you spent a lot of the holiday rereading many of the CEO letters, books, and podcasts that inspired you. I'm curious if you can share with our listeners and our viewers, what are some of those resources? Who are some of the folks that that you follow and that you listen to? Um, sure. I mean, I think uh, I was, you know, early in my career, very influenced by the great value investors of our time. So all the Warren Buffett letters and and, and books, uh, but also all the accolades from him, even to, you know, the the sort of investors of, you know, modern day. Uh, you know, later I got more uh, obsessed about um, CEOs that had done turnarounds. So I remember, you know, reading Alan Mulally's Shirley letter and his his book when he turned around Ford. Uh, the Jeff Bezos letters I think are incredible. Um, you know, particularly three or four of them. Are, you know, I, I read. You know, probably now read a dozen times. Uh, so I think those are really great. Um, I think the Jamie Dimon letter is interesting because you've got a guy that's had incredible success who always starts off by saying, "I screwed all this stuff up." Um, uh, I think that's been great. Um, you know, so so for me, it's 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 a lot. It's this combination of like reading the the letters and and biographies of the great CEOs of our time, particularly ones that I I, I learn a lot from the ones that went through turnarounds or had just really really tough times. Um, and then I think it's about these CEOs running these great great growth businesses to understand the cultures they created and um, you know the, the, having those two ends of the of the spectrum. Well, I find um, crazy helpful. Um, the Alassian CEOs uh, board letters I think are great too. Um, um, you know, the, and then there's so many books now of, of just really, really well done books on certain people's management style, the Fiat CEO, the XP Logistics CEO just had a book came out, come out on him. Um, you know, the, but you, you know, and, and I'm always careful that they like, do I resonate with this book because I'm in a similar job, albeit smaller than them, or is it actually relevant content? And, and, and that's kind of my bar, which is like, is this relevant? Not for just for me, but for the broader team. Got it. And so can you talk about zoom out a little bit in order to go consume that content, you as a leader have to have a level of humility to say, like, I can learn more, right? There are things that I can be doing better. And you just, you talked about a little bit and to dive into your bio more, like you said, you were named, you know, CEO of par, you know, five years ago in your thirties, you have a very successful work history, right? Cornell degree, right? All that stuff. And you still manage to say like, I have to learn more. I have to get better. I can learn from other people. Can you talk about the importance of humility as a leader, not just as the top person, but as anybody in leadership in terms of up until even, I guess, even beyond the day you retire, like I can always get better. I can always learn more. Yeah, I think, and by the way, I'm not, I don't know if humility is what causes the desire to learn more or if it's ambition and and a, and a thirst for like what you don't know. Um, you know, they, I, they may be the same thing. I actually don't know. I haven't thought about that before, but um, you know, on humility, you know, I think, uh, I've always, 
I think you have to go through humbling experiences in life um, to have humility when you have success. Uh, what I mean by that is when you meet people that are successful in their 20s, there's a naivete and arrogance that comes with that success because you are an outlier and you get to be punched in the face or have a death in the family or have a medical condition or something that provokes the, oh my gosh, you know, this is finite and how lucky am I and and how much can I relate to the, to other people? Um, and, and, you know, in my life, you know, we've had, you know, great luck and, and success, but also tons of, of, of tough life experiences that have always kept me, um, you know, relatively grounded in addition to a family and, and a spouse that does that really well. And, you know, I think when I got to par as an example, I never really looked at myself as that different than the young men and women that work on our shipping dock or the truck drivers um, at par. I, I, I always felt like, you know, I kind of got lucky. I was born to parents that stressed education. And yes, we had all these challenges, but, you know, my parents didn't do drugs. They forced education. They pushed me hard. They, you know, X, Y, Z. You know, I, I went to a great college and then stumbled into the right friend group. And, you know, these weren't things that were I designed myself. They kind of just happened. And so I've always looked at, like, to be successful, you need an incredible amount of hard work and brains and IQ and EQ and all that stuff. But you also need a little bit of circumstance given to you. And so when I when I see an incra crazy successful human being, I, I do give them to you. But I always think about what, what are the other parts of circumstance in their life that did, did that. And I think if you can kind of give some of your su success um Come some of the credit of your success to luck or circumstance. Being humble is, is pretty simple. And so for me, it's just kind of been the way I've operated and, and I've never looked at myself too dissimilar. I always like when I go to third world countries, I'm always like, man, like this is like crazy. I could have been that. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so, so I think that's always been part of it. Um, but for me, you know, I would say like the, the, the desire to like learn and, and get better. I, I don't think for me that was tied to any sense of humility. I just enjoy it. Um, you know, I just enjoy learning, pushing myself, being wrong. Um, you know, the, the the sort of two or three people at par that I think, uh, you know, are, you know, some of our best talents. Um, you know, why I love being around them is they question me so much. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's it's almost like, you know, if you came out of the blue and were like, man, like they're a little bit pushy. Um, I enjoy that uh, because I think we, we both learn that way. So um, um, I suspect it's more of, you know, uh, just kind of a wiring. Got it. And, and uh, you were talking about, you know, uh, you know, happenstance and things like that. There's a new book I can't wait to read. It's come out by Brian Kloss and it's called Fluke. And it talks about like how these great accomplishments oftentimes like have to what you, you know, just alluded to, like this strange thing that happened out of the blue and it really led to one thing. So yeah, there are times where uh, we have to to realize that. You you also alluded to, you know, the difficult experiences. So can you talk about some of the experiences that shaped you? I talked about the company that I worked for, uh, Jameson Brothers, run by the Peterson Brothers, and they would always refer to their early years, how they almost like, you know, the company almost went out of, out of business. They didn't take a payroll, you know, or they didn't take a check out of it for, for years and years and years. So I'm curious, is there a learning experience early in the career, in, early in your career that you can talk about that stuck with you? And maybe in, uh, a learning experience later in your career, there was a difficult time that you overcame, something that, again, sticks with you and shapes you even today. Um, I'll answer it in a different way because I, I think it might be more relevant for people. But um, when I got to par, so this is the later in the career thing, uh, it was really scary. Um, you know, I joined the board of the company, and within a couple of months, we it was like disastrous. We had we had uh, we had two activist shareholders. We were under investigation by the DOJ and SEC for fraud. We had this complicated structure of a CEO who really you know had a chief of staff that was calling the shots. We had um, uh, you know, customers that were just incredibly unhappy, employees were even more unhappy. 
and, and I was this new guy on the board and just like, just thinking, gosh, there's, this is a mess. And, you know, so when I became the CEO of PAR, you know, probably the hardest thing we discovered was I wasn't there to originally run the company. I was there to sell the company. But on the first day, our CFO, uh, Brian, comes in and says, listen, I realize, you know, we've done some work and we've only got about 10 weeks of cash left. Um, wow. And I remember being like that being the scariest moment in my career, but obviously now the luckiest because it led to me being here today. But it forced me to run part as if it was my baby, not as if I was just a steward to get it sold. And um, and I dove in. But the, the the point I'm actually trying to make is it was never that scary to me because in life I had already been through a lot of personal trauma. I lost my mother young. Mm. Um, I, you know, uh, we've had financial issues where we thought as a family, we wouldn't have money. and so like, to me, it's always giving perspective of like, this would suck, but it's nothing compared to what we've already lived through as a, as a family or as a human being. And so it, it always gave me a little bit of perspective, whereas work's very important, but other things, you know, can humble you more. And so it, I think it gave, allowed me to be more objective and not get emotional about some of the things that you get, um, emotional and I think make the wrong decisions. Um, I think the other part about it is I am one of those people that just believe if that, Things will will in a work context tend to work out if you put the right people around the table with the right vision and the right amount of energy. Um, you know, just keep getting together, keep getting together, keep getting together, and we'll, we will find a solution. It's interesting you say that. I'm going to slide off camera and see if I, I still have it here. I have a quote that I've carried with me um, about, like you said, getting the right people and making the decision. This is our controller years ago. He said, "We this is in one of our steering meetings, uh, steering committee meetings. We seem to see a crossroad approaching and we should have a discussion so we can make a choice instead of having a path given to us. And I'm sure that was probably during the recession, you know, of 08, 09. Uh, it was Mark Simpson who was our uh, controller at the time. And to your point of that's what we said, like, we just got to figure this thing out, right? There's no reason to panic or anything like that. And so I guess that kind of gets back to the point you said earlier. Like if you want to have a candid work environment, if you want to win, you got to get the right people around the table and then let the chips fall where they may. Am I, I guess am I understanding that correctly in terms of no reason to panic, like just get to work, get the right people and get to work. Yeah, I think that's uh, probably a, a good way to summarize it. Um, and again, like it's, it's, there's a narrative fallacy in just getting the right people. I mean, getting the right people is the hardest part. <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, leading them in a way that they can work well together is probably equally hard. Um, and then, you know, figuring out to make the hard left or the hard right. Um, you know, the challenge I think when with most CEOs over time is, um, you know, this this push towards social cohesion. And so you kind of pick a, a middle path instead of the hard right or the hard left. And uh, and I think you got to go hard right or hard left. Otherwise, you know, you end up um, disappointing both sides uh, of an argument. And so, you know, putting that together, I think if you come with that right kind of mentality, you have a, a team that even if they disagree, commit, um, you'll be okay. Yeah, I've been hearing the phrase, especially in the retail space of you don't want to be in the unremarkable middle, right? You've got to be remarkable on the edges. And it sounds like that's what you're saying too. Like that applies to any company. You can't just be some down the middle boring. You have to be special. You have to be different and you've got to make a choice what that's going to be. You can't just be boring. Um, can you, so we talked about getting the right people there. Can you talk about, and it's oftentimes a struggle for leaders is building that next generation. Again, a lot of RSP members are, are SMBs. Um, and so it's hard for them to get the work done, do the day to day, and then also build the, the knowledge and the skills of the team. Can you share with us, I guess, what are your best practices related to delegation and, and building folks? And can you share with us maybe the story of an employee that maybe you're particularly proud of? their development. I'd really love to hear uh, your take on sure. that because it sounds like you, you know, you got to do that on a regular basis. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of good examples. Um, 
you know, there, there are two gentlemen that sort of run our, our two core business units of operator solutions, which is POS payments and back office, and then guest engagement, um, um, which is uh, our loyalty and, and online ordering solutions. And, you know, both of them are really wonderful examples of people that came to PAR. Um, one of them came out of uh, an MBA program. One of them came as a lateral and within and 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 went to this crazy career path of having you know a tiny role and then two years later they're running our biggest business unit but i'm gonna give you actually another example that just 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 now happened at par yeah um we've got a young a young man who uh, we recently named to be uh, the general manager of menu our online ordering product and i think this would be a wonderful example he came to par as a 12 and 50 cents uh per hour part-time contractor to help doing minute bits of financial analysis for m a uh, so I don't even think he worked 20 or 30 hours a week and he did that job and he just grinded so hard and was so impressive that we said, okay, now why don't you come on and do some, you know, back office stuff on our drive through product line. And he came on and he worked his butt off. And so he became a full-time employee from a part-time employee. And, you know, fast forward kind of uh, four years later, uh, you know, we just named him, you know, the general manager of our, of our, of our online ordering unit, a really important product for us. It's going very fast. Uh, he's the youngest GM in our history, and you know it's it's a, it's an amazing story, and I'm so proud of him because he had no training, no ex- internships, literally came on as an hourly, thinking he'd be an hourly employee, and within four years he's a senior executive of the company, you know, well before his 30th birthday. And who knows if he'll be successful? We don't know yet. But the pride I have of seeing somebody who, you know, was was literally making $12 an hour to, you know, being a senior executive and well paid and being able to help his family and all that that is really cool. But I think it also speaks to the park culture, which is, you know, we don't care where you came from. We don't care your background. We don't care what you look like. We care about your ability to produce. And we'll take a risk on you if you've taken that risk on us. And so he's a really, really good example. Um, I usually use the example of the other two gentlemen because they're, they've been phenomenal. But uh, this is a brand new one. So, you know, ask me in a year and we'll see if it worked out. Sure. And so I have a couple follow-ups in that. First, uh, what are the qualities that made you tap him uh, as a leader? You talked about he's a grinder. You talked about the work ethic. In our first episode on this, we talked about we talked with one CEO who chose his successor, and he said, you know, it's somebody who found success and then also asked me a lot of difficult questions. They didn't just nod their head. What are some other characteristics about this individual that uh, gave you the confidence to put them in this position? So I think that uh, everybody at Par describe him as incredibly empathetic. He's he's just a wonderful listener. He's one of those people where, you know, you feel like you want to share more than less. Uh, almost you like, oh my God, I can't believe I just told you know that that he's got this beautiful characteristic to to listen and and intently listen and and care. And you know, when you're a leader, a lot of what you do is listen, sympathize, and then make a decision. And um, so I think he's got this great empathy to him. And 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 I think that empathy is because he's honest and people trust him. He's able to get great information. Um, and so I think he's always had that. But what I think made him cross the chasm from, okay, maybe that type of person should work in HR or something, um, is he had a couple of elements that I think I really like to. Um, one of them is a basic one that you probably remember from childhood, but I feel like is lost in society today is he's an incredibly hard worker. Um, mm-hmm. When we had, as an example, we had a an interview process for him to apply for this job. And, you know, he was probably the underdog. Um, and I remember uh, another employee telling me that uh, 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 this young man was sending snapshots that he was leaving the office at 3 a.m., coming back at 7 a.m., preparing Jeez. for his interview, uh, and just seeing like, wow, that that commitment. So he's got this incredible hard work ethic. Um, and I think the third thing is business judgment. So we don't give anyone a general manager role unless they have tremendous business judgment. And this is where, to be honest, when I used to talk to him about business things three or four years ago, I was like, oh my God, it's got a long way to go. Now when we sort of throw a business problem at him, 
I'm, I'm so impressed at how he thinks about the people impact, the financial impact, the product impact, the sales impact. Um, and so I think you need tremendous business judgment, you know, and so th they all matter. But if you don't have that last one, you know, it's very hard to be successful. Right. Right. You can work, you know, uh, 200 hours a week. But, but if you don't have the, the right business judgment, do you, do you have any insights how he developed that judgment? Was there like a formal training program or was just he was immersed in your culture? And because he was so empathetic and talking and listening to people, he just got better and better. Is there any any light you can shed on that? Because, again, yeah, no. I know a lot of folks listening, they want to hand off their business or have somebody run a division yeah. and they get nervous. So I think that we, we did two or three things that were unique. We didn't have a formal program um, at all. Uh, I think there are a couple of things that allowed this to happen. One, he did a really wonderful job seeking out mentorship. So uh, he, I think, uh, developed relationships with many, many people at the company. And and so he was constantly seeking wisdom, constantly asking questions. He would go to the head of investor relations and say, tell me how the stock price and all that stuff works. And then he would go to the finance, you know, head of finance. And so he was constantly seeking out mentorship. And so he learned a lot by asking thousands of questions to people all across the bar. I thought that was, that was really good. The second thing is we threw him in the deep end. And it's just a way that I believe in management, but you know, we would sink him into projects that he had no business doing. And so I think when you stick someone in the deep end, you quickly figure out if they can swim or not. Um, and the third thing was, you know, his direct boss, I think did a really uh, marvelous job of actually training him, spending the time and saying, hey, like, how do you think about that decision? W let me see the Excel behind that, or let me think about how you presented that. And so um, that last bit, I think was, was, was wildly important. Got it. And that came up in our first podcast as well, right? You take somebody, you throw them on a problem, and then you get to really get to see how much you have to to jump in and do it. I have one follow-up uh, on that, but I just have to pause to uh, thank our sponsors who support the RSP community and make this podcast and video series possible. For 2024, our platinum sponsors, Blue Star. Our gold sponsors are CoCard, Epson, Heartland, and ScanSource. Also, I want to make sure you save the date for Retail Now 2024, the Retail IT Channel's number one trade show, education conference, and networking event. This year's event is set for uh, July 28th through 30th at Paris Hotel in Las Vegas. For more information, visit gorsp.org forward slash retail now. Retail now is where the industry meets. So I, I noticed something that you said, and I'm thinking some of our listeners might uh, as well. And again, it took me back to that very candid environment I worked in, where you talked about I'm moving this new person into a position. And a lot of times people say, and he's going to be amazing and he's going to be wonderful and he's going to have a long career. But you said like, hey, we'll look it up in here and see how he's doing. Can you talk about that dose of reality in your organization? I appreciate when folks feel that way, but sometimes I've had people call me bad news, Jimmy, you know, when I think about uh, things in that regard and talk about how it might go wrong, um, you know, do that with new hires as well. It could work out great or, you know, it might not. Can you talk about why you say that? And uh, I guess it's just, you know, representative of the level of candor that you have inside of PAR. I don't know why I say that. I think, uh, you know, you, you never know until we've, you know, you see somebody perform. Um, you know, in this instance, they're going into a complicated, tough situation. Uh, growth business across different continents, like it's going to be very challenging. Um, and so, I think it's 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 not so much about um, scaring them or anything. It's just about let's be honest that you know we'll we'll see. Do we do we give this person the chance too early in their career? Do they need more time to season? Um, is it a situation that anybody could solve? Does does this person have the right talents for this particular role? Um, you know, a lot of that is on is on us too. And I think um, you know one of the things. We, we've done, you know, well at times, and some things we've really screwed up is, you know, if you've got a, a great talent, um, you know, it doesn't mean they're very great talent for every role. And so, 
right. you know, figuring out the right role to, that matches their talents appropriately uh, is really important too. And so, you know, we might have messed this up too. So, uh, you know, I, I I generally never try not to get too excited about any one particular hire um, until we see performance. Because in the end, I can have awesome conversations. You can be a great interview. We can talk about you know high level stuff. But until we see the true you know results of that, I I try to stay a little bit uh, objective about it. Yeah, I think it keeps you on your toes as well, because if you say everything's going to, you know, it's a fairy tale going to ha- end happily ever after, then you don't have to put any more work in. But if you say this could go one way or the other, then you know you've got to stay close to the situation and, and put an effort into it, not just I'm sure everything's going to turn out fine. I don't know if you feel that same way as well. Absolutely. Great. I have a few more questions for you. I'm curious. You talked about some of the CEO letters that you read, uh, that you've read and, and reread. Can you talk about some of the folks who directly impacted you, like you might have worked with side by side or worked for some leaders you look up to who have helped you with your leadership approach? I'm curious, like maybe who are they? What did they say? And and that's had a, a lasting impact on you. You know, I I don't I've never had a and again, I think it's because I, I started a business so young before part. Um I've never had like a mentor that sort of was my guiding light because I didn't have the normal career a career director where I worked somewhere for five, 10 years and then did something. Um, so I've never really had that that type of mentorship and and sometimes I long for it. Um, but uh, so for me, a lot of that inspiration or, or guidance, I think has, you know, come from two disparate sources. Uh, you know, one is all the books and and letters and and podcasts and information I've consumed uh, you know, I learn a lot from them. Uh, I'm I'm someone that learns a lot by by reading, um, and so you know I you know like I said I I started on this career journey by devouring the Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett stuff, and it had tremendous impact how I think about businesses, people, uh, how I think about decision making. Um, you know, I think a lot of when I think about Par's values and corporate culture, it, it comes out of like kind of just listening a lot to what they've had to say. Uh, then you know I think about the 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 people I've engaged with and the mistakes they've made. But, you know, I think a lot of my learning has come from books and reading and listening and being in the seat. And then I think the the second part of that is, you know, um, the people not in business that have great impact on my life. And so, you know, for me, my dad's always been, you know, not my hero, he is my hero, but my like, you know, the guy to keep the fire underneath me. Um, you know, I remember telling dad, like, dad, you know, I'm running a billion dollar company and, and you know, I'm so young and him being like, you are nothing. Go look at these 10 people. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, never letting, you know, you know, just always sort of expecting me to do better than, 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 than I am so that I don't ever settle for, for where I am. And so I think, um, for me, I, I unfortunately never really had that sort of direct mentorship of somebody that I looked up to because I was always the person making the decisions most of the time. But, uh, I think it's come for me from absorption of books and interviews and things like that. And then, um, you know, uh, a good dad. Yeah. And well, let's talk about, keep talking about your dad uh, a little bit more in terms of, but the encouragement, the importance of that, right? Candor is important being, you know, uh, I'm not sure if this thing's going to work out, but having somebody who says, you know, you're, you're good, you're great. You've done good things. You keep doing this. You know, I have faith in you. Can you talk about the importance of that as a leader to make sure that people understand the reality of the situation, but also encouraging them uh, at, at the same time? And I've talked to so many successful people and they will talk about these low points where they thought it's not going to work out or I'm just going to quit like this is way too hard. And then somebody said something that encouraged them to keep on going or gave them more faith in themselves. Can you talk about the importance of balancing that candor with encouragement at the same time like your dad did for you? Um, you know, I think the the job of any leader is 
is to figure out what inspires the team that they work with. And that inspiration doesn't need to be consistent across all of those individuals. Um, so, you know, there are people at PAR that I work with where I know their singular motivation is notoriety and or, or financial success. There are people at PAR who I think live for the pat on the back and uh, the feeling of there. There are people at PAR who I you know only care about success, uh, not just financial, but they're, they're, us being winning. And so, you know, I think people have all different means of what motivates them. Uh, there's one person on our team who motivated by fear. Uh, and so I know I have to scare the heck out of them all the time. And, and that's how I'll get the best out of that person. Um, and so, you know, to your question, I, I think it's actually more about how do you figure out the, the the buttons that motivate the individuals as opposed to the whole, because we're all different and have different things. And so, you know, there are people at par that I think a lot about saying, okay, you can, I don't say this to them, but I'm like, okay, they care a lot about financial, you know, their financial success. So let's create objective targets. You hit this, you get paid. We don't have to have an argument at the end of the year because we made it objective for you. Um, there are people at PAR that care a lot about, um, you know, notoriety within PAR and feeling that they got the recognition. And so, you know, you find ways to, to sort of in, accelerate and incentivize that. Um, and then there are people that, you know, are motivated by all sorts of other stuff. And so I think a lot about that as opposed to our, my balancing candor with, with that. Um, um, and then I think, you know, for your broader organization, um, so let's take it outside the exec team, then I think you're, you're, you're spot on, which is you have to provide inspiration. I think inspiration is not about a bunch of like fluffy language and, you know, fancy PowerPoints. It's a little bit about the excitement that if we reach the top of the mountain, this is what it looks like. And let's all mm -hmm. climb to get to that goal. Um, and then the candor comes in, which is like, hey, we are not getting to the mountain as fast as we wanted to, or somebody else has conquered that mountain before us and here's what we need to do to do that but remember when we get to the mountain it's going to be like it's going to look like this and so um you know a lot of our town halls a lot of our planning is about hey here's the exciting vision why here's why we're in this market here's our mission here's how we deliver on that mission um and and then you know the 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 sort of candor is like here's the how are we tracking on the steps to climb that mountain yeah, in terms of what, what you're working toward. As far as the individual management, I remember uh, fairly early in my career, uh, you know, the regular thing at, at our company was somebody does well, you bring them up in front and give them an award or a, you know, job well done or something like that. And he did that to somebody, they pulled me aside afterwards and said, please don't ever do that again. And so I supervised him for another like 10 years or so and never did that again because he preferred, like you were talking about, to be challenged mentally. He wasn't looking for, uh, you know, the the public accolades actually actually made him feel worse and made him want to do uh, less of, of the things that we uh, we wanted to reward him for. So um, just a couple minutes left. We've talked a lot. And I think folks can maybe glean from listening to this some things of your leadership style. How would you describe your leadership style? Are there a few like overarching words and phrases that represent really what you're striving for? as a leader? Um, I, I'll say this. What I hope my leadership style is authentic. I don't know uh, how others would define it, uh, but I, I do think that um, that would probably be the adjective you hear a lot from the folks at PAR. That's probably is witnessed by, you know, candor. Um, I think people would say, you know, I'm, you know, there's an authenticity to how we lead. Um, there's a caringness of, I truly care for the people doesn't mean uh you know we're a charity by any means but we we do think a lot about the, the human being um i would suspect that most people say um i'm decisive in the sense that when we make a decision we, we make it and we don't question it five times over um uh you know it's funny at, at par we have a really high employee nps score um you know particularly for when you sell enterprise software you know employee nps is generally not the highest uh result because you're dealing with customers who you know 
beat you down, who have your phone number. Uh, you know, when you sell a consumer product, like the customer doesn't really have your phone number. But when mm-hmm. you sell an enterprise software, they do, and they'll call you and call you an idiot and complain and this and that. And so, you know, it's harder to have a, a, a high EMPS work environment. But we have a really high one at Park. But at the same time, I think everybody, most people at Park, be like, Park's not an easy place to work. Um, and and we have this fascinating juxtaposition. And I've always wondered what, what drives that because those things usually don't line up. And I think the reason why it lines up is we sort of tell you that coming in. And mm-hmm. and and, again, and so I think. That transparency would probably be the other word I would use, which is we kind of tell you coming in, it's going to be hard. You know, we have four values. Those values are are, are pretty specific. Um, and and we don't come in kind of promising you a bunch of free cold brew coffee and a lot of fun. We come in saying it's going to be hard. You're going to work with really smart people, really motivated people. And if we win, you win. And if we fail, you fail. Um, and so I think uh, to your point, you know, when, I, when we have people that get promoted to par and become a new leader, my first piece of advice to them is, you know, first define the type of leader that you are. And then own it and don't try to be anything else because i think when you get promoted to a big job you start acting in the way that you think you should act and you know i think it's always a huge mistake you know so if you're going to be the charismatic leader like you better have been charismatic all the way up the top to being the leader yeah. um, if you're going to be the the, the 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 tactician then you probably should have your whole career should be that way but you know define that know that and just hold on to it and don't worry if you're not like the leaders that you think you should be so um anyways for me i i suspect people will say i'm relatively authentic very decisive and um, again, I think we're pretty transparent. Yeah, thank you for that. So folks who aren't watching us on YouTube, I've been smiling throughout this whole thing because you're taking me back to, again, the interview process back when I was at Jameson Publishing. We would, some people thought we were trying to talk them out of the job, and in some ways we were because we were setting up the challenge for them because we didn't want to just tell them all the great and wonderful things. And they come on and go like, wow, this job is really hard. And I still remember interviewing a gentleman whose name is Tim Makalevich. He became a very successful salesperson for us. And I said to him, this is going to be the most difficult challenge your professional career do you think you can handle it remember he leaned in and said i'm primed for it like his answer was this is what i want and that's what we were looking for is people who aren't like oh there's some adversity i got to go the other way like the adversity they're like oh what a great learning experience i can i can really be successful with it and so i'm guessing like is that what you're looking for for folks in terms of that they embrace the challenges and you 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 know you talk about that and you said like really frankly and bluntly in the interview process yeah, I don't think we go there and say, are you willing to embrace? I think we try to figure out if that's just naturally the way you're wired. Yeah. You know, do you run to the challenge? Do you crave to be ambitious? Um, you know, I think that's the more of the filter. Um, you know, not so much, hey, can you handle the challenges? Hey, are you yeah. actually wired to handle those challenges? Great. And my last question for you is, and this ties in with the authenticity. So uh, I was thinking as I was coming to this podcast, like you and I, Savni, we've never talked before, met before, right? We work in the same industry, but our paths haven't crossed. And so because I know PAR is a big company, I thought this interview might be more scripted, or you might have some PR people in the room with you or something like that. And you've been completely authentic in terms of give me the questions and I'll just, I'll go from there. Like I'm going to answer them from the way that I know from what I've lived uh, and all that stuff. So I can say for my, um, again, a lot of times I'm on this podcast talking to somebody for the fifth, 10th, hundredth time. Uh, but it's been really neat and interesting to talk to you and you are given these answers, you know, from the head and from the heart. It's not like been some, some prescripted thing, which is great to hear. Well, thank you for saying that. And, uh, I think the key is, are we still like that five years from now? 
Awesome. Well, thank you. Well, that does it for this episode of The Trusted Advisor. If you enjoyed our discussion, be sure to subscribe to the RSP YouTube channel and The Trusted Advisor podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to learn more best practices or VARs and ISVs in the retail tech industry, check out the RSP blog at gorsp.org and clicking on RSP blog. Before we go, big thanks again to Savneet Singh for sharing his wisdom with us today. Thanks to RSP Marketing Director Chris Arnold for his production work, Joseph McDade for our music, and last but not least, Thanks so much to you for listening. Our goal at the RSPA is to accelerate the success of our members in the retail technology ecosystem by providing knowledge and connections. For more information, visit our website at gorspa.org. Thanks for listening and goodbye, everybody.